Hello, you are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Live in the Studio is a monthly talks program recorded in front of a live studio audience. Due to technical difficulties, this talk has been re-recorded after the event. Martin Pedler is the regular film reviewer critic for Triple J's J-Mag, a cultural critic for the Australian Ballet and the comic book columnist for the literary site Bookslut. He's currently doing his PhD at Melbourne University on superhero stories. Martin won a 2009 Australian Film Critics Association Award for writing about political movies and the US presidential election. He first spoke at ACME on the TV show Twin Peaks back in 2004 and has since featured on Live in the Studio panels Vampires Buffed and Fanged, Dead Set Zombie TV and Lovable Murderers. On Sunday, April 8th, 1990, Twin Peaks first screened on US network television. Soon after, I imagine, a chorus of what the fuck was that echoed across America, and soon that chorus was echoed in the Southern Hemisphere as Twin Peaks played here in Australia. Now, on November 25th, 2010, here you are to watch it again, at noon, on a Thursday, watching a show that's 20 years old. That, my friends, is dedication. Dedication or unemployment, one of the two, but either way, I'm impressed. It shows the way that Twin Peaks still circulates throughout popular culture, whether it's in this baffling recent headline that stated that Fox's teen musical Glee was the new Twin Peaks, and here I paused for outrage mumbling from the crowd, or in the tribute by the psychic detective comedy Psych that's reuniting Twin Peaks stars for an episode called Jewel Spires. The fact that it's so odd to see Peaks actors all grown up shows how few have had successful post-Peaks careers. Kyle MacLachlan might have been on Sex and the City and Desperate Housewives, but it's always a little sad to see Agent Cooper playing these neutered and neurotic characters. Ray Wise has fared better with memorable roles, including the devil himself on the slacker comedy Reaper. Uh, Personally, I think Cheryl Lee deserved the status of full-blown scream queen, equal to Faye Ray or Jamie Lee Curtis. Sometimes this curse that follows cult TV stars can almost seem like a gift to fans. It lets the characters freeze, unaging, with the men and women who embodied them tucked out of the public eye, like they're trapped in Dorian Gray's attic. But the show itself, you can see the influence of the small-screen surrealism of Twin Peaks on shows like Medium and The Ghost Whisperer, of its kooky small-town inhabitants on everything from northern exposure to pushing daisies, of its paranormal investigators on X-Files to Fringe, and of its rape-and-murder forensics in CSI and Bones. You can also witness the same love of non-sequiturs in one of the biggest TV hits in recent memory, Lost. When a polar bear shows up in the first episode of Lost, that's pure Twin Peaks. They both even had scenes where a horse magically appeared out of nowhere and then is never mentioned again. Gun to my head, I would probably argue that Lost is the spiritual heir to Twin Peaks. And here I paused again for more outrage mumbling from the crowd. Lost co-creator Damon Lindelof said that when it was time to end their show, the studio kept using Twin Peaks as a warning, a warning of a show that had started strong and then disappointed its audience in the end. Lindelof said that the fact Twin Peaks was still being discussed almost two decades later proved it was a success, and if anyone compared Lost to Twin Peaks, he would take that as a compliment. Lost, though, feels entirely mainstream, whereas Twin Peaks somehow managed to keep its subcultural cool even while it was the biggest thing on TV. It won 14 Emmys in its first season, for God's sake. Co-creator Mark Frost described the instant overwhelming attention the show received as the kind of feeding frenzy that is now kind of routine in pop culture. Now, however, I want to make a long overdue apology. 
I'm guilty of treating Twin Peaks like the David Lynch show and completely ignoring the input of all others. Directors on Twin Peaks were told not to follow a house style and to bring their own visual techniques to the show, but David Lynch has such an idiosyncratic style that it's too easy to see his fingerprints everywhere. Mark Frost was half of the Lynch Frost logo, that logo that used to terrify me when it sparked to life at the end of each episode. And yet even when Twin Peaks was on the air, his input was virtually ignored. The fanzine wrapped in plastic proved the point, with a cover declaring Mark Frost was Twin Peaks' invisible man. I think that Lynch always does his best work when his insanity is mediated by others, and I honestly believe Twin Peaks wouldn't be half the show it is without the rock-solid television logic that Mark Frost brought to the table. It mightn't be as loud or as obvious, but it's just as important. So, can I get a round of applause for the fucking co-creator of Twin Peaks, Mark Frost? And I would like to state there was indeed a loud burst of applause here, though, in fact, there were free donuts given away beforehand, so some of that may be attributable to sugar. Anyway, we recently saw a bunch of 20 years later style articles in newspapers from around the globe, unearthing fun facts about the show. Like the fact it was David Lynch himself who placed the sand grain by grain on Cheryl Lee's face for the infamous wrapped in plastic moment. She said, it was a great learning experience playing a corpse. I got to be a sponge and soak up everything. But who is Laura Palmer, really? Last time I spoke about Twin Peaks here at Acme, I made the case that it's a much more satisfying show if you see it as a soap opera and not a mystery. Laura is just a reason to kick off the plot. She gives some characters something to hide and others something to uncover. Sure, we're told Laura is full of secrets, but when we look deeply into her eyes on videotape, it's not to see into her soul. It's just to see the reflection of something else in the same scene. Twin Peaks was one of the first shows to be dissected endlessly on the internet, with fans posting blurry VHS screen grabs and listing obscure references. It seems to reward careful watching, but often its clues aren't really clues. They're excuses for bizarre quotes or strange imagery or small character moments. In the end, the fish in the percolator might mean about as much as the man in the smiling bag. As one TV critic recently wrote, Twin Peaks is mysterious, not a mystery. So what if Laura's not just wrapped in plastic, but made of plastic too? Today, though, I think I've changed my mind, and I've misjudged Laura Palmer by labelling her as just an easy narrative excuse. The follow-up movie Firewalk With Me, infamously booed at its premiere at Cannes, is a Herculean attempt to turn Laura back into a human being. It acts as a kind of retroactive apology for how Laura was treated throughout the show. Firewalk With Me begins with the deconstruction of a television set, a not exactly subtle way of violently highlighting that what you're about to watch will be different than anything you saw on TV. While Twin Peaks was regularly terrifying, in fact I still believe it's the most frightening thing to ever appear on network TV, the movie is relentless. It's the kind of film that leaves you wanting a shower afterwards. After the Black Lodge and the backwards talking and the David Bowie cameo and the inexplicably chilling monkey face that appears from behind a mask, Firewalk With Me shows the psychic toll of all this horror on Laura herself. And it leaves us with a broken young woman who, despite all those TV Guide cover stories and I Killed Laura Palmer t-shirts, finally finds some kind of peace. In the current world of quality TV, you know, where there's HBO and Showtime and AMC, let alone DVD box sets and widescreen TVs, 
it's easy to forget that Twin Peaks was on regular network television. And one thing I really like about it is how TV it looks, the soft light, the close-ups, the soap opera style. Once the network felt like its audiences were abandoning the show, they got nervous, yanking it off the air for a while, changing nights. The Iraq War didn't help by preempting some of the show's later episodes either, something that doesn't happen with your DVDs at home. But Twin Peaks, to me, feels strangely separate from its original context. So much of its early discussion and hype is buried in obscure alt-dot newsgroups or black-and-white fanzines. It lets everyone who finds it feel like they're uncovering it for the first time. The star's promo photos and talk show appearances feel like artefacts from a parallel universe where Twin Peaks was popular. Just like the show itself feels now, like something that couldn't possibly have been on network TV. And maybe those 14 Emmys were just a strange dream. So here's my thought experiment for you. Try to ignore the fact you've seen the pilot episode a dozen times, quoted its most quotable lines, and dressed up with a trench coat and a dictaphone for at least one costume party. Try to imagine that you're sitting down to watch a much-hyped new show for the first time, right after L.A. Law, of all things, with no idea of what's to come. Um, so I'd like to introduce Simone. Simone is a video and performance installation artist. Her work utilises the pictorial tradition of art in order to generate new narratives from familiar cinematic tropes. Simone completed a Bachelor of Visual Arts with honours at Queensland University of Technology and she's currently undertaking a practice-led PhD at the University of Melbourne in Creative Arts Visual Media. Please welcome Simone. Okay, so I'll be talking about Audrey as a peripheral character that has broader significance within the show. Um, Audrey's introduction in the pilot episode shows her walking from the Great Northern um, Hotel. She gets um, into the back seat of a chauffeur-driven car and as the door's closing, she casts this kind of knowing, um, nonchalant glance back towards the hotel. And in this moment, we already know her character because we, we've seen it many times before in many different films. Um, she's the series Poor Little Rich Girl and she's also um, a femme fatale as well. But within the broader these broader classifications there's some more specific characters that she references and perhaps the most obvious filmic reference for Audrey is her resemblance to the young Elizabeth Taylor, in particular Taylor's portrayal of Maggie in the Hollywood classic Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. There's some clear, obvious visual cues for this comparison with Audrey's hair and her clothes and makeup all resembling Taylor. But while Audrey's manner's not quite as hysterical as, ta as Maggie's, there's a certain desperateness about Audrey's character when it comes to Cooper. Um, and both women are quite strong, but they lose their cool in the face of resistance from their male counterparts. And then this is replicated in the broader scenario, the kind of broader scenario where both women are strong but ultimately weak in a um, wealthy family patriarchy. But Audrey's character's definitely not taken wholesale from, um, from Maggie or, or Taylor for that matter. In fact, 
There's many other characters like Felder, who's played by Maxine Cooper in um, the cult classic Kiss Me Deadly from 1955. And Velda's the kind of character that Audrey wants to be um, and approximates to some degree. She's Velda's a the kind of woman behind the private eye. She um, helps her lover, Mike Hammond, who's played by Ralph Meeker, with, invest with kind of investigations and scams. And she does this to win his affection, but is often, um, he's often too involved in the cases they're working on to have a proper relationship with her, which is um, a classic noir situation. So there's many, many more comparisons you could make, but you get the idea that Audrey's a kind of pastiche of different classic Hollywood characters from the 1950s. And she's like all of them, but she's like none of them at the same time. And this is always um, really strongly communicated visually in terms of her look. But Audrey's not alone in Twin Peaks as um, being a character that it's a pastiche of um, different film characters. And, you know, there's characters like James, who's the like, 1950s bad guy. There's Norma and Shelley, who are both diner waitresses, but having affairs with, um, with having an affair to like escape a loveless marriage, which is a reoccurring theme throughout um, cinema's history. There's also um, kind of uh, characters that are pastiches of television sitcom characters, like Lucy, who's the um, crazy-haired receptionist, <laughs> um, which is a, a cinema and a, a, um, a uh, television um, kind of trope. And so there's also the clear reference to soap operas as well, with Nadine having a um, resemblance to characters <laughs> from Days of Our Lives, which was actually on Days of Our Lives at the time that this was being aired. So Twin Peaks was one of the first um, first series of like television series to use a cinematic aesthetic and have this kind of clear and careful attention to plot and mise-en-scene. But at the same time, it was you know a, a television show, and I think the the tension between that is really um, really brought out through these peripheral characters that, that, that reference cinema in this way, and none more so than Audrey. So, um, as I've mentioned, Audrey's a highly kind of visual character, and I go so far as to say her character's constructed more like an image than it is um, like a traditional character. Um, and as an extension of this, she seems to kind of float through scenes um, without any na narrative purpose. And she seems to be quite unaware of her surroundings, which is probably, you know, the example par excellence would be the dancing scene in the diner. Um, but there's another scene that's in the episode that we're about to watch that, um, you know, sh exemplifies this really clearly, the way that she's... Audrey's always out of time with the, re with the rest of the narrative. So in this scene, we see Audrey embarking on her one-eyed Jack investigation. 
and while snooping around her supervisor's office, she ends up in the closet and she's listening in to a conversation between a, one of the women from the perfume counter and their supervisor. But far from the kind of um, like the tense moment or the kind of screwball annex you might expect from this, this kind of scene, Audrey simply just looks on nonchalantly and there's no sense in which, you know, the cigarette smoke would alert any one of her presence there. So there's like no um, consequence to her action. So, and what happens, I think, in a lot of scenes with Audrey in this case is that there's, it's like there's two planes running alongside each other. You've got the still kind of photo-like scene of Audrey in this cupboard, which feels kind of slightly out of context because Audrey's so nonchalant in her attitude. And then there's a scene of narrative that occurs um, between the two characters in the office and that's, that's, that's functioning much more within time and within the narrative. But we often do see also Audrey in these um, situations where she's outside looking in. And this led me to the work of a, um, a German artist, um, Martina Sorda, who creates these images. This, these are a few of hers. And at first glance, her images, they appear to be st film stills, but on closer inspection, the difference in the resolution between the, um, the different parts of the images reveals them to be collages of these photographs. And each of the co collages show people either looking, looking through or being looked at through doors that are ajar or curtains or things like that. And these images of the movie stars are kind of devised of long gender lines. So you have the men looking straight at the camera and, and the women kind of being looked at without their knowledge. So alongside these images, this artist also shows um, these images of Audrey um, constructed in the same way. So, um, so, but while the kind of female movie stars are, are always looking away, Audrey always appears in these to be not so submissive. She's like the male characters looking, or she hides behind doors. This is another image. And I've got the um, original from where that's been taken. And so the next few scenes, are slides, are just images of that sequence that she's taken it from. So while Audrey is a pastiche of female movie stars from the 1950s, she's also a reimagining of these characters and she creates her own edge to these kind of familiar cinematic tropes. Um, she's a highly visual character that gives her this kind of strange dreamlike quality as she floats between, between scenes looking picturesque. And the character I think would in another series be far too over the top and seem out of place. Um, but here in Twin Peaks she functions as a kind of metaphor for the broader dreamlike narratives that make up the series. So that's it.
And Alex has also uh, been a fantastic panellist on a couple of our Live in the Studio programs, uh, The Vampires buffed and fanged panel and also uh, zombies and also spoken on Tim Burton. So please welcome warmly Alex and her book in the pipeline. <laughs> okay, like most of you guys, I remember exactly where I was when I first saw Twin Peaks. I was doing Year 12 at the time. I'm kind of outing my age here um, by doing so, but that's how dedicated I am to proceedings. I was doing Year 12, and I was just at the right age to have my mind totally, totally blown by it. Um, So I've had this show with me, kind of like many of you guys, in one way or another as a kind of nostalgic thing that I return to for for 20 years now. Um, And it's kind of interesting, Martin touched on this at the start, but just how my relationship to Twin Peaks has changed over that time, that the things that I used to find interesting are now different from the things that that I'm kind of into now. Um, When I was in my teens, I loved loved its playfulness. Um, I loved the oddness of it. I loved Lynch's kind of screwball surrealism. And I loved, most of all, the fact that there was a fish in the percolator. But when we strip away the midgets, the lodgers black and white, and the set dresses turned evil villains, Twin Peaks is in many ways quite pedestrian in its generic construction. In crime fiction across the board, drugs, murder, sexual violence and hot teenage girls go together pretty much like logs and ladies. In fact, in screen cultures more broadly, attractive dead girls are pretty much just grist to the industrial mill. But of course, as we've seen already uh, in the pilot today, Twin Peaks starts deviating from these traditions within the first ten minutes. Can you imagine Law and Order SVU or CSI if the cops broke down crying every single time they found the dead, raped body of a coked-out teenage girl? We would be living in a very different televisual kind of landscape. Um, I think that there'd be a kind of totally different tonal vibe every time we switched on primetime television. So now that I'm older, I actually find Twin Peaks quite beautiful and and especially, again, in the pilot where they discover the body, really moving, like really quite kind of emotionally impacting Um, in the way that they really mourn the loss of Laura. That's what this series is is in many parts about. It's about loss and mourning. Um, She's not just the weekly kind of hit in a colour-by-number crime show. She's presented as a complex and deeply contradictory person and her death has real consequences on the lives of everyone that she came in contact with. Um, I'm kind of going to use this, I guess, as a kind of launch pad into talking briefly about the, uh, the kind of broader sense of uh, investigation um, and how that functions in the Twin Peaks universe, which I guess leads me to the FBI. So like Laura, FBI Special Agent Dale Cooper is full of secrets despite his protestations to the contrary. In terms of the raw mechanics of deduction, Cooper uses a combination of traditional investigation techniques with more kind of, I guess, alternative approaches. Um, And I think that if we were, you know, imagine today that we were actually at Special Agent FBI training school um, and he was giving a lecture, I think the first question that I would ask is, how do you know when to use which approach? How do you know when to use the kind of old-fashioned techniques with your kind of more crazy, quirky, kind of alternative approaches? Um, he, he balances intellect and instinct with a pretty successful hit rate. Um, and there's obviously a long kind of history in detective fiction of kind of eccentric, the eccentric figure uh, who kind of aims for a similar balance between these two features. 
With Cooper, I think the only person who really has the answer to this, perhaps even including himself, the only people who really knows how he juggles this, we ironically never see, and that's Diane. Formal investigation, I think, in Twin Peaks is quite gendered heavily towards the masculine um, in Twin Peaks. We get a lot of guys in suits from the FBI. We do have Lucy working at the sheriff's office, but everybody else is male. Um, my little sister's here today, and I'm going to massively embarrass her. I was doing Year 12. I think she would have been in primary school, and she used to sneak out. She wasn't allowed to watch Twin Peaks. She used to sneak out when my parents went looking and kind of hide behind the couch in a suitably Bob-esque kind of way <laughs> and watch. And she was totally under the belief that she didn't really know what a dictaphone was, and she just thought it was a little black box with a little lady inside it, <laughs> which I think is such a beautifully kind of David Lynch idea that I'm kind of going to stick with it. But regardless, whether Diane's a little lady inside the box or whether those tapes are going back to her at FBI headquarters or whatever's happening, she provides a really useful function, a really important function. Um, She's not just a clever kind of narrative device for us to be able to see inside Dale and to kind of get elements of his kind of thought processes that we might not normally see. It also kind of allowed the show one of the many uh, kind of marketing opportunities that they cashed in on at the time. Um, to kind of, you know, cash in profit on the kind of pretty phenomenal success. All right. So Mark Frost's brother, we've already given a round of applause to Mark Frost. Mark Frost's brother, Scott, uh, who wrote a couple of episodes of Twin Peaks, he wrote this, um, Cooper's autobiography, My Life, My Tapes. Not so much an autobiography as a, a transcript, supposed transcript of his tape recordings. I'm sure many of you guys have this and have read it. Um, it starts when he receives his first reel-to-reel recorder for Christmas in 1967, and it kind of goes up to Twin Peaks. Um, unlike this, The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, written, of course, by Lynch's daughter Jennifer, uh, for me this had a little bit of the Krusty the Clown brand quality kind of thing going on. You guys may differ, that's cool, but kind of like the Georgia Coffee, I don't know if you guys have seen the Georgia Coffee kind of um, marketing campaign that they had in Japan as well little on the crusty, the clown side, but this is gold. If you haven't read it, you absolutely have to. Um, I'm going to read you guys a couple of excerpts from it. (laughs) Are we ready? (laughs) Diane, is that you? Um, All right, December 28, 1973, at 4 p.m., he writes, "'Think I have made a terrible mistake going to college, "'have decided to become a shepherd "'and spend my days tending to flocks of goats.'" Same day at 8 p.m., he writes, "'I never liked the name Dale.'" Always wish I had been born an Apache named Ten Sticks. Why, I do not know. Um, it's not as lighthearted as this throughout, however, and one of the more interesting things that I picked up when I reread this recently was about the relationship between him and Diane. They went on a date. Kind of weird. Difficult if she's in a little black box, I guess. Um, and, and he talks a bit about the relationship that he has to Diane and the tapes. So this is January 10, 1977. Uh, 11pm. Diane, I hope that you will not mind that I address these tapes to you, even when it is clear that I'm talking to myself. The knowledge that someone of your insight is standing behind me is comforting. Very sweet. Cooper's clearly really fond of Diane, and he really trusts her, even if she's not listening to these things, just even as a kind of idea, she has a really important function. Um, He describes her at one point in the book as a cross between a cabaret singer and a saint, which is quite flattering in a kind of weird Cooper-esque kind of way. The book also focuses um, on more specific Twin Peaks-related drama, so it goes into quite a bit of detail about the Theresa Banks uh, crime, um, and he also talks about going on a investigation, drug investigation in Mexico with a DEA agent, 
by the name of Dennis Bryson. Now, Dennis Bryson might not ring bells, but Denise Bryson might. Um, for those of you familiar with the show, you're obviously already kind of onto who this is. This is a pre-X-Files David Duchovny. As DEA investigator Denise Bryson, who helps Cooper in Twin Peaks um, with the, uh, the One-Eyed Jacks investigation stuff, if I recall correctly. Um, so while I said initially that formal investigation in Twin Peaks leans towards the masculine, both Diane and Denise, and Lucy in particular, I think, are worthy of note for bringing a kind of element of femininity to proceedings in a kind of interesting Twin Peaksian kind of way. Um, yet again, we see that things in Twin Peaks are just not clear-cut. They're just not possible to kind of lock down into clear-categorised kind of notions. Um, as Denise illustrates, I, I guess, quite vividly, the owls are not the only things in Twin Peaks that are not what they seem. So back to investigation techniques. Some, as we've seen already, are quite traditional. We have mysterious videotapes. We have blackboards, we have flowcharts, and we have missing people of interest. And, of course, we have clues in dirty magazines. But we also have the less traditional approaches. <laughs> Cooper's spirituality is not just a cutesy aside in Twin Peaks. It becomes an active element of both his investigative technique as well as defining who he is as a character more broadly. As we'll see in the final episode and, and Firewalk With Me in particular, if there's any kind of sense of a really solid conclusion to Twin Peaks, I think that Cooper's kind of spiritual elements have a, a large part to do with them. Um, obviously, I guess the first part of that is the dreams, and, and we'll see more of that as we kind of continue through today. Um, but even on a kind of clue level, I mean, they obviously, you know, help him pick up, the dreams help him pick up things that he never would have thought of otherwise, so the man with the smiling bag. Um, other dreams, of course, have clues that are far less easy to solve. So while I've been talking primarily about Cooper here, um, it's worth emphasising, of course, that he's not the only FBI agent that we see, um, and he's certainly not the only kind of investigative figure in Twin Peaks that we can describe as having quote-unquote personality quirks. We see this, um, obviously, with the hard-of-hearing FBI Regional Bureau Chief Gordon Cole, played by David Lynch himself. But for me, this is nowhere clearer than in my personal hero, favourite Twin Peaks character, the great Albert Rosenfeld, um, who we see declaring his love simultaneously for both Gandhi and Sheriff Truman. It is precisely this kind of contradiction and complexity that opens investigation practices right up in Twin Peaks. And again, if we're thinking about it purely in terms of how, this, how Twin Peaks functions as a kind of murder mystery or crime narrative, it's really fascinating how it hinges around what is both the traditional figure of the investigator or the detective, but then allows insight um, through really strikingly non-traditional means. In My Life, My Tapes, a young Cooper speaks regularly of Sherlock Holmes, who, along with Hercule Poirot and others, demonstrates that intuition has always had a part to play in the detective genre. But in Twin Peaks, this intuition really transcends all other modes of detection. It's actually more important. We're used to the figure of the psychic investigator now, particularly with shows like Millennium and Medium, but Cooper isn't quite like that. His knowledge is kind of less hocus-pocus than it is uh, inspired, I guess, by a kind of deep meditation a spiritual awareness and appreciation of the micro and admittedly what is probably kind of issues resulting from a serious addiction to black coffee. Um, of particular note is Cooper's admiration and respect for the log lady 
and at numerous times throughout Twin Peaks, he gets vital information from her. Uh, far from the local nut job status that she's first granted when we arrive in Twin Peaks, as we see her, you know, she, who's the lady with the log? That's the log lady. She becomes far more important than that. She becomes something quite significant uh, to how the narrative unfolds and to the action that kind of leads up to the, to the conclusion. Um, in some ways, Margaret typifies the kind of quirky oddness of how we think more generally about Twin Peaks, but she really locks in with Cooper along with Major Briggs to this kind of deep, intuitive, spiritual knowledge, and Cooper, uh, Cooper really kind of engages with that. Um, that David Lynch managed, I guess, to create such a successful primetime drama at the intersection of these more abstract kind of elements with traditional murder mystery format is, for me, in retrospect, not just admirable, but just outright insane. <laughs> okay, thanks. Uh, our next speaker is Christian McRae. Christian is a writer, curator and lecturer working at RMIT University School of Media and Communication. He has written on ghosts and ghouls and all sorts of spirits that haunt film, television and video games. And Christian is going to be speaking on Bob and the Lodge and screening the final episode of Twin Peaks. So thank you, Christian. I have to move the mic up because I'm very tall. So we're at the point where the green light turns to red. We've had a bit of fun so far, but from here on in, things get a little grim. Um, I want to talk about Bob basically because Bob is really unsafe as a character. If Twin Peaks has had a massive impact on television over the last 20 years and we can spot references and other shows through to the X-Files and Millennium and the obvious things and less obvious things... Bob and The Lodge really haven't translated in the same way. They're unsafe. Uh, this image really haunts me because it's a sketch. It's, um, it's not quite all there. Now, to talk about Bob alone doesn't really make much sense because Bob is part of a mythology and part of a set of characters that work together to make the entire town unsafe. We hear a number of theories, and we hear a number of terms which alert us to the nature of Bob. He's uh, a killer. He's a rumour. But also, I think, Bob is a force, and he surrounds the town much as the Lodge does. Now, at the time that um, Twin Peaks was on, the, the internet was in its larval stage, and there wasn't really... Um, the huge amount of discussion that you might find, find around a contemporary show, obviously. But at the time, the theories that surrounded Bob as the episodes went, from, uh, went on each week were immense and elaborate. Bob was a spirit that inhabited others. Bob was a spirit that inhabited only the woods and came out during certain times. Some of these were true and some of these were not. What I really like is that as I watch the show every time, I forget which parts are true and which parts are not. And I forget sometimes that Bob appears in different scenes, and it still surprises me. Now, I don't want to rehearse the usual tidbits about Frank Silver, because we know he appears at the end of the bed and in the mirror. Those things are very, very obvious. I want to touch on briefly how Bob fits in to the lodge. Now... (laughs) 
You see what I mean? It's just having a cup of coffee and he just makes coffee creepy. (laughs) The more dedicated Lynch fans amongst you will know that um, David and, in fact, the rest of the crew always said that Frank was the most kind-hearted person that they had ever met. So for him to play an abhorrent, evil, absolute extreme was somehow perfect. Now, Frank was also... um, um, The face of Bob, his skull, as David Lynch would often say, and Mark Frost also mentioned, the skull of Frank Silver is what's horrible, the shape of his head and the way his face gets stretched over it when he does the grimace. And so it it becomes a selling point. Um, In the years that followed, Frank was one of the first to adopt the Twin Peaks convention circuit. Sadly, um, he didn't live uh, many years after the show. But these images from the 1992 Twin Peaks convention with Al and... That would be the most surreal event, sort of in a small hall somewhere and seeing uh, Bob and Mike together just hanging out, having a chat. But the Bob we know isn't the kindest person we've ever met. Bob is the extreme exclusion of anything that might be human. And what I like about Bob, and I don't necessarily have any sympathy for his character, but what I like is that Bob, in the same way that Martin talked about, um, that Laura is used as an excuse, so is Bob. Bob is there to make evil possible. And Bob is there to make things make sense. Because I suppose we're here to, today is sort of a day to prevent violence against women. It's kind of good to think about the fact that these things do happen all the time and there is no lodge. There's always someone in the home, someone that you know. But Bob is there as the extreme to make those things possible again, to make them possible in the world of Twin Peaks. Now, in the... Um, again, this, the sketch image is my favourite. The... In the mythology of the show and the interviews that surrounded it and the hype and the fandom that surrounded it, the theories about what the Black Lodge meant and what Bob meant would change and change and change over time. But they were concentrating on the idea that the Black Lodge, as a term, first appeared in the 1930s and 40s in discussions of Masonic rituals and that there was a Black Lodge and there was a White Lodge. And in this mythology, the Black Lodge was the place... Um, where the bad masons went and they did their evil stuff and we were part of the White Lodge and we were, always, we were always the good guys and they were always the bad guys. So that was always what the fans thought. So Lynch and Frost, in different interviews, said, yeah, actually not so into that. Um, we were more interested in the myths of the Northern American landscape in which different lodges by different tribes were set up for different stages of the year, for different stages and festivals. And we know that Hawk uses the Owl Cave to, to describe some of the events that occur in the Black and then later the White Lodge. So this is David Lynch's map of the area. Um, the town is a landscape and the Lodge is a sort of a borderland, really, of the landscape for me. Bob kind of is, although we, we, as we find out, we're going to find out later in the film as well, Bob isn't necessarily in charge of the Lodge. He's certainly its most powerful uh, provocateur, 
goes out into the world, brings back Garmin Bosia, and um, takes it back in. That, that really disturbs me still, this image. So what Bob does as he evacuates any hope from a situation as he appears is also to kind of make sure that people are tested. Um, as people face their dwellers on the threshold, as Hawke would have it, inside the Black Lodge, Bob is there making sure that the transactions occur. And in the final episode we're about to see, he in fact acts as a cop, really, in the Black Lodge, making sure that people do things in the right way. They face their extremes in the right way. So Bob is not... He's definitely not a complex figure, but he's definitely one with an immense amount of force that is then used in multiple ways. He's not just there for violence. Um, this image, which we're going to see in the movie, and I love the, I love the subtitles, um, this image, I want to talk about Bob and Mike, because obviously we know there's two Bobs and there's two Mikes, but the relationship between these two reminds us, uh, as we watch the whole series, and say if you've watched certainly two versions of the pilot, there's different versions of their stories. There's a place outside of town. Maybe it's in the mountains. Maybe it's in the forest. Maybe it's above the convenience store at the bottom of the hospital. Bob lives there. No, Mike lives there. Laura went there. No, she never went there. And all these layers start to pop up again and again and again. And I love the way that Bob and Mike interfere with each other's plans as the story evolves and changes. Um, we're going to see the worst of Bob um, and all the people that he spends time, spends time with in the next three hours. Um, and it's, I guess I want to draw our attention to the fact that he's there also to police the different relationships that occur in the lodge and outside of it as well. Thanks. Dr. Sage Walton. Sage teaches in the Screen Studies program at the University of Melbourne and until recently was assistant curator with the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Sage collaborated on ACME's permanent exhibition, Screen Worlds, the story of film, television and digital culture. Her work on genre, aesthetics, embodiment and film and TV history appears in the contemporary comic book superhero, Playing with Memory, the film of Guy Madden, Lounge Critic, The Couch Theorist Companion, Senses of Cinema, Screening the Past, Artlink and Metro. Please welcome Sage. Thank you. Um, okay, so I'm not actually talking that much about Fire Walk With Me, but hopefully we'll give you a good lead into that. Um, so my topic is David Lynch, and I think that arguably the ongoing cult status and reception of Twin Peaks both historically and in a contemporary sense, has a lot to do with the creative presence of Lynch. Renowned for its weird, surrealistic content, its highly stylized violence, its themes of madness, dreaming and fractured psyches, its cryptic clues and scrambled narration, Lynch's foray into TV echoes many of his authorial signatures across his films. Indeed, despite the collective nature of TV production and the influence of Mark Frost... The series itself often seemed to make deliberate appeals to Lynch as its formative um, creator. For instance, um, Lynch's well-known love of coffee and pie is riffed off throughout, as you've been experiencing today. 
Maddie Ferguson hails from the same hometown as Lynch, Missoula, Montana, um, which is why I've got that up there. Many of Lynch's trademark visual techniques also appear throughout, such as tilted or skewed shots, um, disproportionate shots that suggest a sense of imbalance or a world that's been skewed out of whack. Um, the Black Lodge Red Room scenes are entirely Lynch as a kind of perceptual and psychotic theatre or performance. And I'm going to get back to this idea of the theatrical and an aesthetics of artifice for Lynch shortly. And of course, on screen, Lynch assumes the guise of Gordon Cole, who incidentally, next to Albert Rosenfeld, Gordon's probably my favourite character of all in Twin Peaks, and even the fan discourse that circulated around the show when it first aired often made appeals to Lynch as the series' puppet master or trickster figure, the creator behind the show who was gleefully anticipating and undercutting audience expectations as to what would happen next. Now, today I'm guilty of elevating Lynch as well in terms of interpreting Twin Peaks and choosing to examine it through its Lynchian aspects. And without at all wanting to dis. Mark Frost, otherwise Martin Pedler and others might rush the stage. Um, I do think that there's much sense and significance to be had in us examining the series through Lynch, especially in terms of some of the key Lynchian ideas or motifs that pervade it. And I do want to add that my kind of like Lynch criteria that I've come up with today is not meant to be at all about a correct way of interpreting or watching Twin Peaks. Rather, it's more about what continues to fascinate me about the series to this day and also David Lynch's work as a whole. So, in rounding off the discussions today um, and before we move into our Q&A time, as Anna said, I want to give you a few means of critically passing through the series of Twin Peaks. Now, this idea of passing through a space or an object like the blue box of Mulholland Drive is quintessential Lynch territory. Just think about all the passages, highways, tunnels, hallways, darkened voids and bodily cavities, opened mouths, severed ears that recur in his work. Time and time again, we're given the impression of moving through a space or the addition of yet another spatial dimension that extends our perceptual field. For instance, in the shift between micro and macro scales, as evidenced in the opening of Blue Velvet, and passing through a space often also signals a metaphoric passage between worlds or states, between dream and reality, saccharine sweetness and horror, good and evil, black and white lodges, darkness and light, and the list goes on. I like to think about these passages through space as being embodied and tangible iterations of Lynch's general approach. By that, I mean that in uh, um, the Lynchian universe, it's less about our narrative destination or the resolution of a mystery than it is about our winding and experiential encounter or passage through a particular world. And we know that, had it been left up to Lynch and Frost, the murder of Laura Palmer would never have been solved. This was meant to be the core mystery that generated other enigmas, chess games, puzzle boxes, UFOs, ancient symbols and so on. So if Lynch's intent isn't to explain things for us or ascribe a set fixed meaning to his works... How, then, are we best to understand Twin Peaks in terms of the creative presence of Lynch? And here I've got an interesting quote from him because I'd suggest that, as in the quote here, that the experience of Twin Peaks is about us inhabiting a particular atmospheric world. 
I find the notion of inhabiting to be an extremely productive means by which to understand Lynch, especially given his attempts to create effective or emotive circuits that are shared between the image and the viewer. And I'll get back to this. This is because I think that Lynch's work is founded upon the spark that occurs as bodies or elements come into proximity and contact. Just think of those recurrent bursts of flame or spurts of electricity in his work. Lynch himself can be considered a highly physical and sensuous director, one who uses dreamlike visuals, sound and textures to express his atmospheric worlds. In interviews, interestingly, he's also voiced his distrust of words or linguistic structures in favour of trying to convey a reality that's sensed physically or through our emotions. Lynch's collisions of sound, image and texture seek to evoke atmospheric moods or feelings in us rather than a desire for rational explanation. He believes that through moods, feelings and sensual perceptions we can better sense things, a process that occurs only when we're allowed to luxuriate in the unexpected. So in that regard, he's far more interested in atmospheric expression and emotion than standards of realistic representation. And even his characters seem strangely obsessed with physical connections to objects. Think of Cooper and his tape recorder, Jerry and his smoked cheese pig. I added that in there for you, Alex. (laughs) Everyone and coffee, donuts and pies. Everyday objects and materials are also translated into portents of impending fear or signs of supernatural danger. A shadow on the beige carpet, bathroom hallway mirrors, traffic lights, the sound of a ceiling fan, a record player, a phone call. And even particular textures and substances become imbued with different types of feeling. I have never been so scared of um, creamed corn (laughs) as I am in certain episodes of Twin Peaks and certainly in Fire Walk With Me. But not only creamed corn, but scorched motor oil, denim, double denim, (laughs) Um, fire. These all evoke feelings of horror. Um, Flowing water, as in the opening credits, evoke both innocence and melancholy. In fact, that emphasis on texture um, and material surfaces recurs throughout Lynch. Um, Smoke, velvet, vinyl, formica, fire, water electricity, televisual snow, as you'll see in the opening of Fire Walk With Me. And he'll often incorporate particular substances or materials into into the credits as a way of physically kind of encoding the broader themes of his films. So rather than privileging linear progression or narrative resolution... The key, I think, to the Lynchian universe or world lies in its elevation of a visual, sonic and effective atmosphere. Now, that said, this atmospheric world, particularly in Twin Peaks, um, is a highly artificial one. From the get-go, the catch cry of the pilot, she's dead, wrapped in plastic, cues us into the flagrant artifice of Lynch, um, of plastic as a synthetic and manufactured material. And his films, as you'll see here, will often include what seem to be extremely flat, faked, um, synthetic images, two-dimensional images, like the jitterbug opening of Mulholland Drive. Um, And throughout emotions, whether they be fear, hate, love, desire, grief, whatever, are typically conveyed in incredibly exaggerated gestures and over-the-top actions. Um, I always think of Laura Dern crying in Blue Velvet because she cries so well. (laughs) Um, 
So these kind of over-the-top actions, weeping and contorted faces, bodies that shake and convulse with the sway of feeling. So much so that it seems like these emotions are being faked, acted out. Allusions to the history of Hollywood cinema and different genres, teen film, horror, noir, the musical, the soap opera, self-reflexively call our attention to the artifice of Lynch's images. And then, on top of that, you get Lynch's love of quite literally including elements of performance, as in his tradition of the spooky nightclub, um, in his works or theatrical motifs like um, the use of spotlights, um, curtains and so on. Now, what interests me about Lynch is how he manages to intertwine sensation and self-reflexivity or affect and artifice. And this is one of the reasons why I think he keeps returning to lip-syncing so often, to hint at the emotive value and power that can come from the false, the artificial, the mediated and cinematic. Lynch's use of artifice isn't about trying to intellectually distance you at all. It's not that daggy kind of Brechtian tradition. Instead, it's about exploring real emotions through overtly faked images. I'll just get back to that. Um, the fact that you can experience horror, anxiety, dread in the face of overtly staged situations. So while Lynch's aesthetics of the false will foreground performance, the theatrical, artifice and the simulated image, I think he's also very much invested in resting genuine states of feeling and emotion from his audience. And in fact, and maybe this is something that we can pick up in the Q&A, I'd go so far as to suggest, and judging by some of your tweets as well today, that some of the most intense and effectively charged moments of Twin Peaks are those that are also the most overtly artificial, um, performed or seemingly faked. And one prime example there would be Maddie's death in episode 14 as it's intercut with um, the performance at the, at the Roadhouse. But feel free to disagree. Um. <laughs> 